Welcome to Health Matters, Sonoma's weekly program devoted to health and well-being. Each week through interviews, editorials, and listener participation, we will explore topics and issues of contemporary medicine and its relationship to the lifestyles of our community. Our goal is to provide you with information and resources to help you achieve and maintain what you deserve, a happy, healthy, and productive life. I'm your host, Dr. Ned Hoke, a veteran in natural methods healthcare, speaking with you today from Sonoma Valley, California, for an hour of health topic digestion and discussion. Please stay with us. And welcome back to Health Matters, Dr. Ned Hoke. Today, uh, joined by Dr. Uh, Juan Frias, who is a uh, epidemiologist, uh, a physician from Los Angeles. He's an, I guess you're an employee of the Natural National Medical Institute. Is that correct? National Research Institute. National yep. Research Institute. He's been very involved in um, metabolic diseases, liver disease, and so on. So our our goal today, for our listeners who are interested, uh, is the the story of uh, the fatty liver disease situation, and which is a a really uh, very interesting. Un, very much un, misunderstood by, in a public way in terms of how substantial this is for our health and well-being. So we're hoping that Juan can help walk us through some of the basis, the basics of liver disease, and kind of how we uh, how we can cr- confront it in, a, in a more effectively in our lives. And I, it takes me back actually, Juan, to my very early in my medical going to seminars kind of thing. And I went to a seminar. I remember this guy standing up, and this was 34, 35 years ago maybe, and he said, you know, you've got to get ready for liver disease coming down the pike here. He says, he said we should be expecting a, cons- a considerably in- considerable increase in liver disease over the next, and he was then talking about the next 20, 30 years. And now, and that caught my attention. And so I've got, kind of been paying attention to it a little bit more than I might have, so is this, is it your opinion also, do you feel that, I mean, I don't know how old you are, so maybe you don't know 20, 30 years, but has there been, uh, in your experience, a, a substantial increase in, in liver disease and fatty liver disease specifically? Yeah, well, you know, thank, thank you very much for inviting me, first of all. So um, I would say that person that you listened to in that seminar was very wise and prophetic because, you know, a- absolutely there has been an increase particularly in fatty liver disease, and then obviously that's going to be our topic today. But in it's estimated that it's going to even continue further. Um, right now, fatty liver disease is, in the United States, the number one or the most common chronic liver condition. And it's also the leading cause of liver transplantation in women with liver disease and the um, and the second number the second cause or in the list of causes for um, liver transplantations in men. And it's estimated that by 2030 in the U.S., in the U.S. population as a whole, it will be the leading cause of liver transplantation. So you're absolutely right. It is increasing with time and, and primarily increasing with our type 2 diabetes and our obesity epidemic. Right. And some some research I read talked about there was this was actually from a, a Taiwanese person, but he said that the prevalence of um, fatty liver disease increased from 2004 to 2013, 170 percent actually 
in this was a, a, a Taiwanese writer, but writing of the of the United States. So, uh, so it, it really were very much demonstrably increasing. So it's not just that we're worrywarts; it literally is uh, very much alive with us. And so, maybe you could say a, a well. Let's let's start uh, one with let's separate out what uh, the difference between Nash and and it's called. The other one is I still haven't got quite the word yet. The the acronym for NAFLD. Naffled. Naffled. But Naffled. okay. So yeah, just discrim yeah. discriminate for our listeners. Naffled and Nash, if you would. Yeah, you know what? That's a really important distinction, actually, because um, so Naffold, which stands for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, is an umbrella term which covers sort of all fatty liver that's non-alcoholic. So I'll start by saying that that. You know, we, this is a diagnosis of exclusion, if you will, because too much alcohol um, can also damage the liver and can also cause fatty liver. There's some very, very rare genetic disorders that can also cause fatty liver. and There's some medications that can cause fatty liver. So if you have fatty liver and it's none of those other things, and particularly if you're someone who's obese, has type 2 diabetes, has other risk factors that we can talk about, this is more than likely what's called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And that basically means that there's fat that's infiltrated the liver cells and it's greater than 5%. That's sort of the cutoff. So greater than 5% fat in the liver. And that's called NAFOLD. Now, within NAFOLD, there's a small portion of patients, and it's not that small, about 20%, maybe 25% of patients with NAFOLD have something called NASH, which is sort of a more serious form of fatty liver disease, and that stands for non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. And basically, that's fat along with inflammation. That's why it's hepatitis. That's sort of the word for inflammation of the liver. And there's also damage to the actual liver cells. So that's a more advanced form, which can lead to cirrhosis and, and further issues that we can talk about. But basically, NAFLD is sort of the just means too much fat in the liver, and then within NAFLD, there are patients who don't have inflammation, and that's called NAFLD, without just non-alcoholic fatty liver, or some patients, a smaller proportion, have NASH, which is really the more serious form of this disorder. And just very quickly, I'll say in the U.S., it's estimated that 25 to 30 percent of adults in the U.S. have NAFLD, so have fatty liver. And that, you know, if you do the math, it turns out to be about 80 million people. So, um, so it is, like you say, a very important disease that we need to be aware of. And it's, and it's, so that's huge. I mean, it's, 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 mm -hmm. it's really quite huge. And, and the thing is, is that I, I, I don't hear uh, too many people focusing on this. And, uh, and of course, the thing is, is that the, the people wring their hands about uh, overweight, obesity, and that kind of thing, but they don't get into the into this into the uh, uh, the the, uh, the physiology of it as much. They this sort of they, it's sort of a shaming process. But but there but there's a there's plenty of reason why the body picks up. I, actually, I mentioned this before we actually went on the air. I said, in practice, I'm start, I'll, I'll frame it as a question: Is it your view that there is? Uh, some of this obesity is, in fact, a consequence of a toxin load that the body is unable to manage, or is it simply aberrant behavior, or is it is there any kind of a way of thinking about that? Well, I mean, if we're speaking just about about obesity in general, um, yeah, this is just 
very people are very genetically predisposed. Um, certainly, the central nervous systems are in the hypothalamus and areas of the brain that, that regulate feeding behavior and hunger and satiety and, and appetite and those sorts of things. I mean, there are sort of abnormalities there in people who are obese as well. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, if we consider certain food substances as toxins, which which they are, it really ends up being, you know, for whatever reasons, it's overnutrition, and that and that has led to, you know, significant issues with with obesity and overweight, with type two diabetes, with dyslipidemia or abnormal cholesterols, with hypertension or high blood pressure, and also with fatty liver disease. Um, so, so yes, I would say, you know, in general, sort of, if you talk about sort of quote-unquote toxins, you know, although there may be, you know, some specific toxins like, like in, in bacteria, for example, in, in the gut, um, that could, could sort of make people more predisposed either to obesity or fatty liver disease or diabetes, but in general, it, it is overnutrition. Which means we eat too much. It means we eat, yeah, we basically means we eat too much and we eat too much sort of very calorie-dense food. So I think it's not only the, the amount of calories, although that's extremely important with respect to, to body weight, but it's also the composition of that with respect to, you know, the carbohydrates, the fat, the protein. And, and you know, I think most of us and certainly most of my patients, we just intuitively know what, what a healthy diet is compared to one that's not. But, um, you know, but at the end of the day, people who, who have obesity, you know, oftentimes have sort of abnormal signals, if you will, in their appetite centers in the brain. So, you know, many medications are being looked at and some are approved, which sort of target that. But at the end of the day, with respect to fatty liver disease, there is a very, very strong correlation between obesity, particularly waist circumference, um, but BMI or body mass index and obesity and the amount of fat in the liver and vice versa. So the good news is probably, you know, there, there are no approved therapies now. I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but, you know, the, what probably works the best, not probably it does, works the best with respect to getting fat out of the liver is, you know, reduction in body weight. We can certainly talk more about that. My understanding as I read the literature that I read, it's, but doesn't take a huge amount of weight loss that says five or ten percent uh, can bring down the uh, AST and the ALT marker, the liver markers, and is is considered by some to be uh, well well on the way to repair. Is that your expect uh, your sens- sensitivity? That, yeah, ab- absolutely true, and that's founded on some very robust data that actually looked at liver biopsies as well. So a number of trials have been done looking at, at weight loss and. When you get to seven, certainly to ten percent weight reduction. So that would be in someone who weighs two hundred pounds, get down to one hundred and eighty pounds. Um, you can get ninety percent of those patients that had, you know, NAFL and actually had NASH, um, resolve the steatosis or the fat in their liver. Right. So you definitely get the fat out. And those patients that had what's called fibrosis. So one of the things that happens once you get inflammation is that you get scarring of the liver, and that's referred to as fibrosis. Right. And that's really what you're trying to avoid. But there was even in 45% in that particular study, 45% of those patients that lost greater than 10% of their body weight, 45% had significant regression or improvement in the fibrosis even. 
So that's important. Now, the liver is a very sort of what we would call a plastic organ. It's very forgiving up to a point. Mm -hmm. So you can, you know, it regenerates very easily. So kind of getting rid of these toxins, whether it's alcohol, whether it's fat, that actually is a toxin that, that stimulates this inflammation and this reaction, the scarring reaction, getting rid of that, the liver can, can actually go back to, to its healthy state as long as it hasn't gone too far into kind of cirrhosis or something like that. But, um, but, but absolutely. So, so, you know, when I speak to my patient, they don't need to go from 200 pounds to 120 pounds. I mean, I, I just want slow, realistic weight reduction, and we're trying to get to, you know, at least break that 5%, you know, maybe if we can, that 10% weight loss barrier. And the importance is maintaining it, and that, that's, you know, much easier said than done. And that's where I think sometimes some of the medications that are either available for weight loss or are coming out, hopefully, in the near future that address both weight and fatty liver disease, and for those who have diabetes, address that as well, are going to be very, very important. Right. So, so does this put you in a position of being, uh, apparently you're a researcher, but you're, say, you're also a clinician. So does that, does that make you pretty much a weight loss doctor on a very regular basis? I mean, this, it, it, is, is that a lot of what you end up doing as a clinician? Yeah, you know what it really is, because, I, again, most of my patients have either type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetes or fatty liver disease, and, and the vast majority are either overweight or obese. And, and even if patients go on medications for either type 2 diabetes or off-label medications for fatty liver disease, you know, I think that the cornerstone of their treatment needs to be lifestyle changes. And it's not, not, not only sort of diet, but it's also physical activity. Although the diet will, you know, help patients lose weight more, the physical activity is very important to improving insulin sensitivity. Actually, in and of itself can improve liver health as well and cardiovascular health. And that's something we should talk about as we move along is the importance of controlling cardiovascular risk factors in this disease as well. So when you say cardiovascular risk factors, are you referring to the level of fat in the blood, basically? Yes, yes. So, um, so I'm referring to yes. the level of, of, of cholesterol, specifically what's called low-density uh, lipoprotein cholesterol or LDL cholesterol, which I don't know. You always tell the patients think of the L as lousy. So LDL is lousy. <laughs> and the HDL is good. You want that as, as high as, as possible. But, yeah, so really controlling the cholesterol levels, controlling blood pressure, telling patients that if they smoke, they need to discontinue or cut back significantly, and that often takes, you know, smoking cessation classes. There's not much we can do about our family history, right. fortunately or unfortunately, so that, that risk factor sometimes we're stuck with. But so um, in anyone with fatty liver disease, so anyone with NAFLD, um, their risk of cardiovascular disease is increased compared to someone without it. So the way that I look at it is that we need to treat the liver disease, and that's right now the only thing we really have that's approved anyway is, is weight loss. Um, you know, vitamin E has been studied and a, a medication called pioglitazone as well. But there are many, many medications in clinical trials now. But as importantly, we need to manage, so that's the liver, we need to manage the cardiovascular risk. So that's good cholesterol levels, good blood pressure, no smoking, you know, some physical activity as well. What, so what kind did, of a two-pronged approach. Right. What, so what did you make of, I just saw something recently in the, on the news where, news wires, 
about how saturated fat has been let off the hook in terms of being the, 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 uh, base, the base cause of cardiovascular disease. Did you see that? Uh, there was apparently some... No, you know what? I, I didn't see that. I, I, I don't know. I mean, you can, you can find... I'd have to look at it to, to comment on that. But, you know, you can pretty much look in the medical literature now. There are just thousands of articles that come out every day. You can, probably, you can find something supporting every theory. <laughs> right, right. That's I a... always jump to, to very reputable... Sure. Medical journals. Oh, you know, sure. Like the New England Journal, the Lancet. Even they're retracting some studies every now and then. That's right. very much peer reviewed. But you know, at the end of the day, I, I, I tell my patients, we, you know, just be be reasonable. I mean, I can't tell someone who's eating ten tortillas a day, please stop tortillas. Right. I mean, right. not if their entire family is eating them. So I'm saying, hey, how many are you eating? Ten. Why don't we go to four? Right. No, <laughs> I, I, I understand. I understand that. Modifiable changes that are that are you know realistic. I, life, I, life goes on; it's not all about fatty liver, right? I so, understand those yeah. those conversations very well. Being a clinician yeah. for forty years, <laughs> you know, sure yeah, you, you know. So, so, but let's let's get into it a little bit in in the sense of what what's fatty liver disease going to show up in terms of what a patient feels in terms of their yeah. That's their, a great question. That's a great question. And that, you know what? That's one of the reasons why it's very much underappreciated. Like you were mentioning at the beginning here when we started speaking, that a lot of people don't know about it. And I can tell you a lot of, a lot of physicians don't know about it. We don't get, and certainly when I was in medical school 30 years ago, 35 years ago, right. we didn't get classes on fatty liver disease. We hardly got anything on diabetes. But, um, so it's, it's, for the most part, asymptomatic. It's kind of a silent disease, so patients won't have any symptoms. Now, if it gets very progressive and the patient you know, starts having some liver failure, if you will, I mean, then there can be fatigue. Sometimes the liver gets a bit large and sort of expands a bit. Patients can get some discomfort in the right upper side of their abdomen. Right. Um, but I've had patients that I've treated, like with significant weight loss, and I've seen, you know, with different tests that we can do, that their fatty liver has gotten much better. And then they'll say, sort of in retrospect, looking back, oh my gosh, I used to have this fullness or this sort of pain in my right, what we call the right upper quadrant, the right upper part of my abdomen. Right. And now it's gone. But they didn't, you know, they didn't realize it before. So that that would be probably the the biggest symptom of sort of early disease. But for the most part, it's asymptomatic, and that's why um, a lot of you know a lot of patients, most patients that have it, don't know that they have it because we don't look for it much as physicians. Well, and that, that and, and that's yeah, exactly, and that's one of the things that really uh, was a one of my inspirations to do this program is because as in, in 35, 40 years of doing clinical work, I've seen plenty of of, of gallbladder and liver dysfunctions that I didn't mm-hmm. understand as well as I needed to. When I started to look at uh, at fatty liver disease, and fatty liver disease oh. opened up a whole world of understanding to me, which I wasn't as ac- acutely aware of as I was before. So, Juan, Dr. Juan Frias, we need to take a little break. We're t- we're talking to Dr. Juan Frias. We're talking about um, metabolic dis- disease, primarily in the area of the liver. Please stay with us. We'll be back with you in just a moment. And welcome back to Health Matters, Dr. Ned Hoke. Today, joined by Dr. Juan Frias from Los Angeles, who is a, a both a clinician as well as a uh, liver researcher and works a lot with ob- obesity and diabetes. 
and uh, has a, a quite a long record and, and done a number of uh, papers that you, you can read online, I'm sure. So um, do you have a website, Juan, that, that people could go and read it, read about anything that you've written or, or, or not? You know, probably the best way I'll tell you to, to look at uh, some of the work that we've done, um, we do have the, our, our I, I guess some of it is on, on the website, but I, I would say to if, if anyone just Googles um, PubMed, P-U-B-M-E-D, right. and then put my name in there, F-R-I-A-S, comma, J-P, or Juan, J-U-A-N, then the list of publications comes up. Our website will be um, www.n is in Nancy, ri.com. Okay. So that's NRI, National Research Institute. And then some of the abstracts, and then you can find out actually about our center as well on, on the website. Right. So um, in today's world, there's a lot of discussion about the. Uh, uh, the microbiome and kind of how that plays into the dynamics of the situation that we're talking about. Do you have any thoughts, just general thoughts you could share with us about how the microbiome is, microbiome is influential in the development of what we're talk, trying to talk about today? Yeah, so the microbiome is, is, is actually very important. It's, you know, there's a, a lot of research ongoing, not only with respect to fatty liver disease, but also with respect to, to diabetes as well. So, um, you know, depending on, on, on sort of what bacteria are in the in the gut, basically, um, you know, some some can cause small leaks, if you will, in the intestine, which lets certain toxins in. And any anything that flows from the from the guts or from the bowel, if you will, the colon, right. um, into the bloodstream straight to the liver, so through what's called the portal circulation. It sort of funnels through the liver first, and the liver sort of detoxifies, if you will. So that can also provide, you know, a lot of, um, we'll just kind of quote-unquote call them toxins to cause inflammation. So some people feel, and this is a theory that's fairly common, sort of what's called the two-hit theory, that, hey, so the liver accumulates too much fat in some people, so that's called steatosis, so too much fat. The fat is a bit toxic. I mean, the liver sees that as a toxin and you know sets up some inflammation. But then, if on top of that, you're getting other toxins coming in because your microbiome is sort of, I'll just say, for generic terms, kind of out of whack, um, then that can cause even more inflammation. And at the end of the day, it's all this inflammation that can potentially lead then to scarring because the, the body sees this sort of as a, a foreign body. You know, it doesn't like this there, so it sets up the inflammation. A lot of white blood cells go in there. Um, it's just sort of very toxic. And at the end of the day, what ends up happening is that you can think of cirrhosis as a scar being laid down right. because of this inflammation. So, yeah, I think it, it is important. I mean, that, that's work, you know, that um, it, it's not exactly my field, but, but certainly um, I, I think it's important, and it's something that we'll be seeing more about, maybe you know, specific therapies that can the microbiome to reduce the, the risk of certain diseases. Well, that that's the, the world that I tend to be living in. That seems to be one of the one of the primary places that uh, that people attempt to to start to turn things around in terms of correcting the whatever may be correctable in the microbiome. And and then the, then there's there's the whole world of evaluations about the microbiome. What what the level of of the different parts of it is how effective the immune 
layer of the uh, mm-hmm. of the gut is, and so on. And exactly. and, and they're saying about how if the, if that immune system is not it, it, it is well is hyperactive, for instance, and it's it, it's then sending out um, uh, inflammatory cascades, which then they it's regarded as you know obviously going up through the portal circulation and and, and ir- you know creating more irritation for the liver. So they're the people that I sort of again the, the sort of progressive natural medicine people that I tend to hang with. Right. Uh, they tend to feel that the, the that the well, we, as we started at the beginning, that 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 that, that toxic root is one of the primary roots that is aggravating the liver, and so so anyway, uh, coming back to now, that's very, you know what I would say that's very very interesting, and and I would agree, but then you know usually like many other diseases, it's, it's sort of what we would take quote unquote multiple hits. Sort of thing. So I think right. you know that in and of itself, in someone who's thin on an excellent diet, may not be. But then when you add to it, you know, maybe smoking, which causes a ton of inflammation and oxidative right. stress, and right. too much fat in the liver. I mean, these things end up accumulating and, and oh, really yeah. decreasing the risk. So oh, yeah. I, I agree. I think it's, it's very good to see more work in that. But I think it all comes down at the end, you know, or a lot of it anyway, to to just appropriate nutrition. Too, right. So. Right. Well, I there, there's yeah. The thing is, is that the, the you 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 know when you're trying to do therapy, you're, you're looking for a, a a nut that you can get a wrench on, you know, and and, you know, right. and so so in your case, you you've you've obviously got the the nut that you're trying to get a wrench on is the obesity and the other aberrant life you know lifestyle behaviors, which of course is a extremely fruitful area to to, to do work in. So um, no no besmirching that. So let's let's talk about some more about uh, what people can do uh, to uh, do some evaluations if they if they feel that they may have they may have some congestion in the upper right quadrant they may have uh, some other gallbladder signs for instance whether it's uh, uh, where they have a, a, a like light, light colored stool or something like that they may have some other disturbance gallbladder disturbance which is then part of this other situations. So how are you, how are you creating evaluative schemas for your patients? I mean, there's, I understand there's yeah, ultrasound yeah. and there's MRIs. Well, let's talk about the diagnostic picture of what, how we can look at, at uh, NAFL and, and NASH. Absolutely. So, and, and I would actually separate it from gallbladder disease. And I think, you know, some of the symptoms you mentioned and signs are, are very, very important, but oftentimes they're sort of a more late stage disease. You know, certainly someone's getting jaundice or they're getting a lot of pain or they're, you know, so, um, so I would say since the vast majority of these patients are asymptomatic okay. and really just have risk factors. So the first thing I do is when I see a patient, I mean, are they a high risk category for this, which would be obese, so like a BMI over 30 kilograms per meter squared. Do they have type 2 diabetes? Do they have hypertension? Do they have abnormal lipid profile? And um, sort of what we would call the metabolic syndrome, and those patients are at very high risk, particularly if they're Hispanic or Native American, even higher risk than Caucasian. And actually the lowest risk is in African Americans. Um, very, very low risk of NAFLD and NASH in, in really? Africa. Actually. Really? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's a, there's a genetic predisposition not to, to have this issue um, in that population. But in any case, so if I have someone who's a very high risk like that, um, you know, what we do is um, we, would, we would get liver function tests. Right. So 
So there's a liver panel that can be done that looks specifically at something called aminotransferases, something called an ALT and an AST. But those can be normal in this, but generally they'll be on the higher end of normal. And then um, an an ultrasound could be one way to do it. We have um, an instrument called a fibroscan. And a fiber scan is a non-invasive, sort of like ultrasound, but it's not an ultrasound, and it gives you a non-invasive indication of the amount of liver fat and the degree of liver stiffness, or if there's a potential risk of fibrosis. Mm-hmm. And then there are also, through blood tests, there are some um, some tests that are what are just you can run through what are called risk engines, something called a NAFL fibrosis score and something called FIB index. So basically you plug in age, the platelet count, the ALT, the AFT. There are a few other parameters that are relatively common tests that are that are obtained by, by physicians. And you you know the physician can go into a website. And this is all sort of in, in the, the liver society, something called the the which is the the American Association for the Study of Liver Disease, they have their guidelines, and these are two tests that they recommend physicians uh-huh. okay. conduct to um, to assess the risk of fibrosis. But, um, yeah, so those, those are the, the tests that we use. So uh, uh, liver, yeah, first of all, looking at the patient, examining the patient, seeing their risk factors, and then I just want to know, hey, do they have fatty liver disease? And if so, more importantly, do they potentially have NASH? So right. Do they potentially have the more advanced form? And if they have NASH, do they potentially have, are they on their way to cirrhosis? And, um, and so that's where I find that the fiber scan is, is very useful. We have one in the office. It takes about 10 minutes for the, the technician to, to do it and um, to give us an indication whether there's fibrosis. And then, you know, it, those patients, in, in my practice, we will assess them for entry into a clinical trial. I mean, mm-hmm. there's multiple medications are being assessed. But if I didn't have, if I wasn't a clinical trial center, and I found a patient in my practice that, based on those, you know, the FIB4 index or the NAFL fibrosis score, had was sort of in a high risk of having significant fibrosis or on the fiber scan, right. the fibrosis score was high, then I would refer them to a hepatologist. Because mm-hmm. I also want to make sure that, you know, there's nothing else rare going on that could be causing this. And then they may elect to send the patient for a liver biopsy. At the end of the day, today, the only way we know 100% if a patient has NASH, now we can tell NAFL by ultrasound, we can tell it with the fiber, uh, fiber scan, but the only way we're really going to know if the patient has um, has NASH is by getting a, a liver biopsy and actually looking at liver tissue. Um, so, the, and that's usually something that the the hepatologist or the liver specialist would send the patient for or do themselves. We, we don't we don't do those. So. I see. I see. So the 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 histologic scoring the the NAS is is also one of the mm-hmm. tests. Is is is. Is, is, yeah, that's more important for, for sort of for research purposes, but it is very important. So it's called the NAFL activity score goes right. from zero to eight and looks at those factors in NASH. So it looks at the amount of fat, that's part of the score, right. the amount of inflammation, that's part of the score, and the amount of what's called hepatocyte ballooning, which is basically liver cell injury. They just sort of balloon up, so they call it ballooning. So based on that, they assess, they give it a score. And it's used a lot for research purposes to see if a drug reduces that score. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
And um, and then there are other, there are other tests that can look for you know the amount of liver fat like MRI and that's something called MRI with PDFF for protein density fat fraction et cetera et cetera. But those are very expensive, you know, generally not covered by insurance, and they're used for research purposes. But at the end of the day, I think you know if I'm a clinician, you know, primary care or an endocrinologist like I am, and what I really want to do is you know, assess my high-risk patients to figure out if they have NAFLD or not, and that can be done with an ultrasound or a fiber scan, I'll get right. their liver function test, right. and then assess, okay, they have it, do they possibly have NASH, do they have all the info, and do they have fibrosis? And if they're very high risk, you know, and I, you know, if I wasn't in a research center, I would say, okay, I'll refer over to my friendly hepatologist down the street, mm-hmm. and he'll take it from there and, you know, recommend therapy and whether he thinks a patient or she thinks a patient should get a liver biopsy. You know, one of one of the other reasons there's not much sort of done about this disease or known about it is the fact there are no FDA-approved therapies currently. Hopefully we'll have the first one later this year or early next year. Is that something, but, um, something, so, that, you're, something that you're developing? Well, we're not developing. No, no, it's a good Big, big pharmaceutical company. Oh. You know, this is all public information. I'm intercept. It's a drug called beta-colic acid. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we, we are investigating it. You know, we're one of hundreds of sites around the world um, conducting the, mm-hmm. sort of the pivotal phase three clinical trial. Mm-hmm. But we'll see. We'll see what happens with with FDA. It's been submitted to the FDA. Mm-hmm. But um, but again, so right now, what we really have is you know, weight reduction. Vitamin E has been shown to be effective, but uh, you know, to, to, to the to the audience out there, I would say that you know any medication for this needs to be um, you know discussed with your physician. I mean, there there could be some some issues with vitamin E. It's not recommended for patients, for example, with type two diabetes, and at doses over four hundred um, international units for certain patients. So you know, but but there are. There are medications that have been assessed in masters, just nothing that's currently FDA approved. Mm-hmm. Well, when we so, we need to take another little break here. When we come back, I'd like to talk about actually fat tissue, adipose tissue, and kind of some of the story about how free fatty acids is relevant and how that how that's part of the dynamic. So we're speaking with Dr. Uh, Juan Frias, and we're talking about liver disease, fatty liver disease, primarily. We'll be back with you in just a moment. Please stay tuned. And welcome back. Dr. Ned Hoke today joined, joined by Dr. Juan Frias, a Los, a Los Angeles uh, f- uh, physician who's uh, involved in uh, the work that we're discussing, which has to do with uh, diabetes and endocrinology around these uh, these topics. And also primarily our, our, what got us started really was the whole idea. I wanted to explore then had the opportunity to talk to, with Dr. Frias about the fatty liver disease because it's in, in my case, um, I've been a practitioner for almost 40 years, but I'm still just basically learning about some of the basics of, of fatty liver disease and, and the consequences of it. And so one of the things that's what's why it inspired me to sort of jump into this and, and uh, take up Dr. Frias's time. So talking about the nature of free fatty acids and adipose tissue, and kind of how free free fatty acids, how that kind of connection between that adipose tissue and, and how the liver is busy managing all that, that might help our listeners understand and get a visual picture of some of the dynamics of the situation we're talking about. Yeah, so that, that's an in, interesting question. Uh, you know, because, 
you know, the, the adipocyte or the, or the fat cell is just, it's a very metabolically active cell. I mean, I, I think, you know, certainly when I went to medical school, the thinking was that this was, these were cells <laughs> right. that stored fat. Right, like exactly. Did, you know? Right. But, you know, adipose tissue is like, it's like an endocrine organ. So it's very, very active metabolically. It secretes certain hormones like adiponectin that, um, you know, if that's high, that's actually very, very good. The higher, the better. And, it, you know, it's associated with improved insulin sensitivity, with improved liver health as well. So sort of, um, you know, adipocyte health, if you will, is, is, is very important with respect to not only storage of fat, but, um, but you know, also release of, of free fatty acids and, and how much of that fat is going to stay accumulated in the liver, what's called sort of de novo um, synthesis of, of triglycerides um, and, and fat. So, so I think, you know, beyond just, you know, I don't know how much, how much detail we, we want to go into, but, but I think it's important to understand that the, the, the fat cell is a very important and metabolically active cell. In, in people with metabolic disease, oftentimes there are abnormalities in the fat cell. So when someone eats, and, um, and, and fats go into the bloodstream, you know, oftentimes rather than normally taking that fat up, because that cell may be just very resistant to the, to the uptake of fat, for example, that fat then ends up getting stored what we call ectopically. So it could be stored in the, in the liver, for example, and that is one of the causes of fatty liver disease. Exactly. It could be stored in the pancreas where it could, where it could sort of um, reduce insulin secretion and, and, and help yeah. lead to diabetes. Exactly. So, so yeah, so I, I would just say that it's, it's, and some of that is genetically determined. Some of it is determined, um, again, going back to, to obesity and maybe other toxins that we've been talking about, you know, there things that may be unidentified at this point, certainly. Right. Well, I, I guess I wanted to talk about the free fatty acids in the liver dynamic was because the liver's role as i understand it is 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 uh, is organ protective it it, it 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 i understand that it the liver draws the free fatty acids out out of the blood and it and tries to protect the other organs from being overwhelmed by free fatty acids and so then when it become right. when it becomes uh incapable in, in of doing that then other organs in the in the body system then begin to suffer by the buildup of these free fatty acids. So is there, is there anything to say about that? No, I think that's a very, that's a very good way of thinking of it. I mean, you know, we talked about the portal circulation before. That when, you know, because fats either come in through the diet or there's, you know, what we call de novo lipogenesis or production of fat by the body. Right. So, uh, so the liver sees all this first, all the fats coming in. Right. And then on top of that, like you're saying, it's sort of a bit of a scavenger and it does sort of help. It is sort of the first hit organ, if you will. So, so I think that 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 is that is important, and and that's one of the reasons why fatty liver is is so common as well. Right. Well, uh, so given that you know a lot of our listeners, whether they're obese or not, uh, are are being constantly cons- uh, counseled uh, by the public media as well as things you read in the paper and so on uh, about mm-hmm. metabolic syndrome. So. Before we before we leave, let's let's talk about a little bit whatever you choose to say about metabolic syndrome, and kind of how that develops in the direction of what we've been talking about. 
Yeah, so when we talk about metabolic syndrome, it really is a, a constellation of disorders, if you will, that sort of tend to commingle, I guess is a good way to put it, would be abnormal glucose, so either pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes, um, obesity and overweight, um, a, a, a large, larger-than-normal weight circumference, I mean, usually fat carried in the, in the abdominal area, so the mid-area is more metabolically active and sort of more negative fat, if you will, um, and it, it also with um, with dyslipidemia or abnormal lipids as well, and hypertension. So all of these things tend to, and, and polycystic ovarian syndrome. So there are other things that sort of came together with this. And, um, and patients with these conditions, uh, sort of at the core of all this is insulin resistance. Right. And and I would say the fatty liver disease is that one of these conditions that is part of the metabolic syndrome. And, and you know, it's a little bit of a, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg, and I think they both sort of feed into the other. So the fatty liver can result in diabetes, the diabetes can worsen fatty liver, and the fatty liver can worsen diabetes. So it's a bit of a, um, you know, it's not necessarily one causes the other. They kind of both feed into each other, if you will. But I, I always think of fatty liver sort of as, as another sort of complication, maybe of type 2 diabetes or manifestation of, of, of the, the metabolic syndrome, which right. again would be, you know, all of the things that I, that I mentioned there. So, and a lot of those being improved, I'm not saying it's the only solution by any means, by, um, by some reduction in body weight. And to the point you made earlier on, I think it's very important. You know, we're trying to get to like, you know, maybe five to seven, you know, hopefully more, but 7% weight loss gives you probably 80 to 90% of the metabolic benefit of the weight loss. And, and I think that that's, that's the encouraging message that we have for, from today's visit, actually, is that, is that I think that, at least in my experience of, of the, the sort of typical obese patient that I may see, that they're, the supposition is they're really stuck. And, of course, part of the, and of course they feel stuck, profoundly stuck in, in, in all kinds of ways, the emotional ways as well as the, the fat on their body and so on. And so the, the, the business of actually being able to create a, a pathway, a picture of, of what could be, what, what the future could be, were they, were they able to accomplish these various, various uh, improvements? And, of course, one of them, as you say, is weight loss, which, of course, can be effectuated with, uh, you know, better exercise and uh, other behavioral lifestyle items. And, and the other thing about going back to fat, just circling back very quickly, is that the issue, a lot of the, the issues of inflammation, of course, many of our clients have all kinds of other issues that are inflammation-related. And, and one, right. of the, one of the reasons to, to take this whole conversation somewhat seriously is that if we're looking to actually manage our inflammatory environment, we perhaps are we'd be wise to have some consideration very directly of what what exactly the status of our of our liver is. Which takes me to the next the close to the last question I'll ask of you, uh, Juan, is in terms of what some of my colleagues call hepatoprotective behavior. Do you, do you, in your work do you actually find yourself uh, having that kind of an idea? Is, is there a, anything either whether dietarily or anything else that you choose to share with your patients that really when you literally think of the liver as something that needs to be looked after in a protective sense? Yeah, so I mean, I, I, you know, first and foremost, um, you know, avoid to the extent possible 
any drugs or medications that might have effects on, on the liver. Um, I think, you know, certainly I tell my patients, particularly those with, you know, more advanced, you know, fatty liver disease, to, to just, you know, take it easy on the alcohol as well, but right. that can be toxic to the liver too. I, mean, right. I don't tell them they can't drink any, but certainly we don't want to have excessive alcohol consumption. Um, and, and then really from a, from a dietary perspective, for my patients anyway, it's primarily cutting back on the carbohydrates. Uh-huh. Most of my patients very, very high carbohydrate diet, and most of that carbohydrate is turned right into fat. Right. So, um, so I think, you know, from a diet perspective, and I, you know, so I, I don't necessarily, I mean, I, I will use on, in selected patients um, vitamin E that has been shown to right. protect the liver right. against, um, and, and there, there may be some other patients with diabetes. There's a class of drugs called the thiazolidine diones, and pioglitazone is one of the medications in that class. Right. And that has been shown also to, to improve liver function, but has some other important potential side effects. So I would that, and I, I do think, though, just kind of, you know, healthy eating, it doesn't need to be, you know, we talk about the diet, you don't need to lose, you know, 20% of your body fat, it's 5 to 10%. Right. I would say with exercise as well, it doesn't need to be going to the gym for four hours or doing CrossFit, it's getting out and doing some brisk walking for 30 minutes every day, mm-hmm. there's a lot of bang for the buck right there. So right. I just think, you know, kind of healthy <laughs> physical activity, nutritious diet, and avoid toxins, excessive toxins, such as alcohol and right. you know, other other potential medications. Well, the, all, all, those are all the ones I've been using for 40 years with my clients, and I, I, I've had some fun. You know, one, I can, I've had people stop me on the street, actually, and say to me, mm-hmm. you know, you got me walking, and that's changed my life. You know, and I, 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 I remember those comments over and over again when I think of the, right. the, the patients who's sitting in front of me who is struggling, who's like really trying to sort of bring life back into their into their body and into their their feeling of well-being, and that they get out and 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 uh, you know mind their diet and and get that daily walking in. Oh my gosh, what a what a benefit! Yeah, what a what benefit! Say, by the inches of inch. I mean, I, I think you know just making small adjustments. I mean, literally, I've had patients that have been going from regular Coke to diet Coke, for example, <laughs> and getting used to that taste in a couple of weeks. And they're like, how could I ever have drank that? Or you, you really right. start going through the diet. They, they're drinking some bizarre shakes and drinks that, my gosh, it's like eating a bag of sugar. I don't even know right. it, though. You know? So sometimes it's sent yeah. to a nutritionist and, and really having that conversation. Right. And then moderation. Not cutting all of that stuff out because that's not sustainable. You know, right, so. right, right. Well, Juan Frias, it's been a real pleasure to have you, and and, and you've been Likewise. really he- very helpful to to our listeners. And, and I'm sorry we we were able to take calls, but perhaps another time. So thank you for so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Good day now. Take care. Bye bye.